Can you tell me where we are right now? This is my home, my first official home. Is that a tent underneath your bed? Yes. That's where we hide his mess. These are our little sugar gliders. So they're nocturnal. They should be up as soon as the sun goes down. They sleep in one of the little pouches over here. Oh, how cute. And this is my room here. That's great. Yes. A little office space. My little office space. I work from home on Mondays and really whenever I need to. I'm thankful for that. In the back, it's overgrown with weeds back here, but there is a little backyard. It's awesome. Every day that um, we walk in the door, I am grateful to have a space that is ours and that's just for us. Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An elevated Denver starts now. Welcome back to the Elevated Denver podcast, where we're bringing key topics and stories about homelessness to light. We are excited for today's episode, the second of our two-part series on the hidden voices of homelessness. We'll continue to hear from people you would never imagine were unhoused, and others who are involved in supporting these individuals. We'll bring you data, context, and we'll highlight solutions. I'm here with Leanne, Jana, and Myra, through the episode, you'll hear Jana and Myra asking our guests questions and Leanne tying some threads together through the narration. I think you'll enjoy it, so stay with us. Before we start, we want to let you know that we went through an informed consent process with everyone we interviewed. And before airing each of these episodes, we sent the recording to the interviewees to make sure that they were still comfortable with us sharing their story. I want to acknowledge that parts may be triggering for some listeners. If so, please take care. In this episode, we'll be talking about another often overlooked population of those experiencing homelessness or housing instability, those who are priced out of the rental and housing market. Many people work full-time jobs, waged or salaried, who simply don't make enough to maintain stable housing. We're going to hear from Christina about the struggle to gain economic and housing stability and learn more about what it really takes to afford housing in Denver. We'll also hear from Stefka Fanti, the executive director of Elevation Community Land Trust, who is working to make home ownership more attainable for low-income individuals and families. Christina is a Denver native who recently became a homeowner through Elevation Community Land Trust. She spoke with us about her housing journey and how challenging it's been to find housing that matches her income, especially as a single mother. I work at a law firm downtown, and I'm a single mom. I have a seven-year-old little boy. <laughs> His name is Isaias. 
and he is funny and smart and probably teaches me more than I've tried to teach him ever. <laughs> well, would you like to tell us a little bit about your life before you got your home? I had, Isaias was maybe two years old. Um, when I had him, I was working at Denver Health and I decided that I wanted to be home with him. And I took my 401k since I had been there, oof, maybe eight years. I had a good amount saved up in my 401k. So I took that and um, I stood home with him for about a year. So it was really nice to be able to have that time with him. And I was living with one of my cousins at the time that I had actually always lived with throughout my teenage years, early adult years. Christina had her son while she was working and decided she wanted to take time off to be with him. She then went back to work, receiving job training to uplevel her career, and then moved into a salaried position. And yet, she still struggled with housing. One of my cousins at the time had a shop, a little shop that she owned, and needed somebody to work the register on just customer service kind of thing. And I offered to help, ended up being there two years. <laughs> My mom worked for the city of Denver. She worked in the workforce unit. And one of the programs that would come in and talk to the folks um, was Cross Purpose. So that's how I learned about the Cross Purpose program. And in order to do the Cross Purpose program, it was eight to three. So my hours at work would drastically be reduced. But I decided I needed to do it. I moved in with my sister and I did the program from eight to three. And then I went to the shop from three to eight. And I decided to go for legal assistant. So in doing my research, I found the law firm that I wanted to work at. It's called Hall and Evans. And I applied there and only there because that's where I wanted to work. I wanted to be a legal assistant, but I had never done it before. So they created a position called legal support assistant. And so within about two years of working there, I was a legal assistant. They hired me as a legal assistant. When I was still living with my cousin and working at the shop, I was only making $11 an hour. So that would go to my car payment, our rent payment, and that was it. And thankfully, it wasn't even really rent. My uncle had purchased a trailer. It was a trailer that we lived in at the time. So all we had to pay was the lot rent, which was only $600. So my half of that was only $300. My car payment being maybe $360 at that time. So just to give you an idea, my checks would be about five, maybe $600, and that was it. That went to my car payment and my rent in one check. Um, so that didn't leave anything for the light, the water, you know, our food, um, the insurance on the car, my phone. That all had to come out of my one other check of the month. So in moving in with my sister, that eliminated the rent, the light, the water. Um, I still had to pay my car, still had to pay my insurance, but that was it. And she let me do that for the five years that I ended up living with her. Wow. Yes. 
So five years it took me to find cross-purpose, get a better job, get a better position within that job. Charlie Brennan from the Colorado Center for Law and Policy talked to us about the self-sufficiency standard, a measure of economic need based on housing, health care, child care, transportation, and food that estimates income needs for different households across Colorado. Here he talks about the self-sufficiency standard. When we look at costs for a single adult in Denver County, in 2022, the self-sufficiency standard estimates that that individual would need an annual salary of $35,160 to cover all of their basic expenses, or the equivalent of $16.65 per hour hourly wage, assuming that that individual works full-time. One of the striking things about looking at this data is how expensive it is to have a child in this state. You know, when we look at a single adult, you know, that income need, again, was about $35,000 annually. It more or less doubles uh, to $68,799. As a new mother, Christina struggled to find housing she could afford. Here, she talks about her income. Now I make probably three times that much. I think it's about $61,000 a year. Just again, to give you an idea, one of my checks is probably $1,700 and my mortgage is now $1,700. It's still, it's not enough for, for Denver. And now I don't qualify for food stamps. You know, Now I don't qualify for any um, government assistance. So now I have to also try and fit that into my monthly budget. Um, and when I, when I first got my house, it wasn't, my mortgage wasn't that much. It was with this year's taxes that it went up to $1,700. i am grateful for my job and, you know, have the amount I make. It's hard for Denver. We'll be right back. Hello, podcast listeners. We are very excited to announce our Be Part of the Solution and Help Us Finish Season 2 fundraising campaign through the Colorado Gives website, now through September 1st. With your help, we will raise $15,000 to produce the final episodes of Season 2. If you like this podcast and you want us to continue to bring key topics of homelessness to light, then please donate. Visit coloradogives.org slash story slash elevated Denver or click on the link in the show notes. Together, we can finish season two and ensure these important stories reach our community. Given the gap between wages and the cost of living, especially rent and mortgage payments, It's easy to understand how unattainable stable housing can be for many low- to middle-income earners. Christina takes home about $3,400 a month and pays $1,700 for her mortgage and taxes, which means she's paying half of her income for housing. The recommendation is that households pay only 30% toward housing, but that's nearly impossible for most Denver residents. 
data provides us with a lot of evidence that folks are in this situation because wages are just too low to realistically allow a household to support themselves without working 80 hours a week or working multiple jobs or you know um, putting themselves in situations that aren't conducive to a quality of life that I think we all we all hope for and want for every household in Colorado, every family in Colorado. One thing that we haven't talked about that is part of the, the overlooked and undercounted report is sort of the share of households below the self-sufficiency standard that are also severely housing cost burdened. It's about 46.6% of households who are below their self-sufficiency standard in 2019 were paying 50% or more of their income on housing costs. And just 22.9% lived in housing that we would consider affordable based on their income. So spending 30% or less of their income on housing costs. So we see a tremendous correlation here between housing cost burden and people below their self-sufficiency standard. And what we know from other data sources, how much income or wages increased over that same time period. Because we have data going back to 2001, we can really you know, take a 20-year, almost two-decade look at how costs have changed over time here in Colorado. For this four-person household, that's you know, two adults and two kids, those housing costs increased by 92% on average between 2001 and 2022. However, the average earnings for a worker over that same time period increased by just 64%. We also know that not enough homes are being built at attainable prices. Colorado saw a 40% decrease in the number of homes built across the state between 2010 and 2020, while during the same time, population increased by 15%. With increased demand and decreased supply, housing costs skyrocketed by 59%. A recent national study out of Harvard also cited a loss of over 230,000 affordable housing units in Colorado over the last decade, due, in part, to demolition or deterioration of the units and conversion or flipping units to a higher price category. Policymakers know this is an issue, and there have been efforts to create programs that address down payment and rent assistance, but it isn't enough. And they know more affordable housing is needed. One pathway is an innovative approach called the land trust model. Here in Colorado, Elevation Community Land Trust is working to provide permanently affordable home ownership opportunities. We sat down with CEO Stefka Fanti to learn more. Our purpose is to both create and preserve the opportunities that homeownership provides in perpetuity. And what that means is that we sell homes to households that are below 80% of the area median income, so low and moderate income households, who in this market have no opportunities to move into ownership, so really are stuck in a rental situation in perpetuity. Because the prices of homes have skyrocketed so much over the last decades, but really over the last couple of years. And so what that has done is it's created a gap between renters and even not just affordable rentals, but market rentals into ownership. A technical note about what you just heard. Area median income, 
or AMI, is the midpoint of a region's income distribution. That means half of the people in the region make more than the AMI and half make less. So even those entry-level things that we used to think about, condos, townhomes, the prices of those are now at a level that are not affordable even to our middle class. There is not that entry. There's not that pathway beyond your impermanent situation into a stable situation where your rent is not rising, where you understand what your household expenses for housing are going to be month to month. You are not at the whim of a landlord. You're not at the whim of the market because you are in a mortgage. You are in a stable situation. We asked Stefka to tell us what a land trust is and how it came about. The community land trust model actually came out of the civil rights movement in the late 1960s. It actually had its roots in rural Georgia when a group of former sharecroppers were kicked off of their land because they registered to vote. And so the same organizers reorganized the same group to purchase a large piece of farmland. What they quickly found was that when they can make a living, they also wanted to build a life. And so how then can we balance their ability to make a living with their uh, desire to have a home? And then also, how are we going to balance that collective ownership of the land, which was so powerful for that group, with the idea of individual ownership of property, which is also a powerful motivator for, for folks. And the community land trust model is all about balance. Those same folks developed the community land trust model. The community land trust model essentially holds the underlying land in communal ownership while selling the improvements or you know, the, the house itself and the water and sewer and the well structure and all of that, everything that went to improve that land is owned by the individual or the household. And so that does a couple of things. It separates the value of the land out so it makes that home more affordable immediately. And it takes it out of the general real estate market. So it decommodifies that housing uh, taking it off the market so that it can only be used for the purpose that the communal land ownership intends. Um, in our case, that means it can only ever be used for affordable home ownership for households under a certain median income. So a community land trust is a piece of land owned, in this case by an organization that can only be used for the purpose of affordable housing. This helps those who earn below the median income build generational housing stability. And so legally what that means is that through title, we separate the ownership of the land from the ownership of the home. And the two are tied together using a 99-year renewable ground lease. And what that document does is a few things. First, it provides all legal rights and responsibilities to that homeowner. So that land is theirs. They have a leasehold interest in that land and full access to it. 
what it also does is it sets up a few restrictions that are the balance pieces that I was talking about. And the purpose of those restrictions is to ensure that every generation following has the same benefits that that first buyer had. So first, the home has to be owner-occupied. The idea is to not profit off of your real estate, but rather to use it as a platform for your family's stability. And the second is really our most critical piece, which is our maximum resale formula, which says that the home can never be sold for an amount that is not affordable to someone under the 80% AMI. The maximum resale calculation is a critical piece of the land trust model because it ensures that each property owner receives the same benefits. This is different from a traditional real estate transaction because it requires that the home be sold at an affordable rate while the land remains under the trust. When they're ready to sell, we take a look at what the appraisal is and we compare that to the market appraisal from when they bought it. And we say, what is the appreciation during that time? And the homeowner can take 25% of that appreciation and tack it on to their initial sale price. On top of that, we put realtor fees and commissions, et cetera, so that they're really walking away with that 25%, which means that they are benefiting from the market and, and the increases in the prosperity that others are also benefiting from, but they're limited in how much. And the reason for that is so that they can pass that opportunity on to the next family. It just, it opens doors and opportunities. And that's the small picture. What the big picture is, is that it allows us to leave real estate and wealth to the next generation. So that intergenerational wealth is really critical, and it is something that has been systemically barred from huge swaths of the population. This generational stability is exactly what Christina was seeking for her and her son. Owning their home allows them to know what their address will be for the foreseeable future and to put down roots. Never would I have been able to probably even qualify for a studio with the income I was making at that time. That was when I had the light bulb moment of, I can't pay my own rent, much less somebody else's rent. I need to get my life right and pay my own mortgage. That wasn't anything, that wasn't something that I was taught when I was young. Renting and bouncing around was what I knew. That was what I was used to. There are a lot of different kinds of bills that come up and different things, but knowing that you are the owner and that it's yours, it's a whole different feeling. We hope this made you think more about what it really means to make a livable wage, what we should be paying people, and what policies around affordable and attainable housing could look like in our city and state. If this has piqued your curiosity, We'll have a blog post about community land trusts where you can learn more and contact Elevation Community Land Trust to get more involved. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you to all of our interviewees for taking the time to talk with us and to share your experiences and perspectives. If you liked today's episode, consider giving us a good rating and help others find us by sharing the show with your network. 
If you want to keep these episodes coming, visit elevateddenver.co slash donate, where we will put your donation to good use. And to dig in more on the issue, check out the show notes and additional information at elevateddenver.co slash resources. Tune in next time for our interview with Lucky, who struggled to make rent and worked well over 40 hours a week. That triggered health issues, which caused him to lose his job, and then he became homeless. I ended up getting really sick, had a seizure, and when I came back from the hospital, they made me resign, and I couldn't pay my rent anymore. So I kind of went the other way towards the streets and started selling drugs and everything, and I got caught, went to jail, got out of jail, didn't have anywhere to go. And that's how I became homeless. When I was getting out of jail, I had a transition to a, a shelter, and I, I didn't come back one night, and I just and they wouldn't let me back in. So then it was straight to the streets, and I slept in parks, and it was different for me. You know, I, I kind of lived a high-maintenance life a little bit. I was really used to a couple things, and... I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to get back on my feet, and that was the hardest part. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Narration brought to you by me, Nathan Havey. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by the Olympic Recording Studio. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.